0: Everyone sees a huge amount of opportunity ahead of the company or they wouldn't join. And so, especially if you have people who are really excited and really passionate, which hopefully you do, um, you can, there's a risk of sort of always thinking about and getting excited and a lot of cultural energy, um, you know, going towards things that aren't the most important thing at that moment.
1: Stuart Alsop and this is my podcast Crazy Wisdom where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear an ingrained fear of going crazy Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear realize that it's there and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, This is a special episode where I'm going to be interviewing Ryan Delk from Omni, uh, COO of Omni, about our thoughts on the book Creativity, Inc. So this is a new kind of, it's almost like a Crazy Wisdom book club uh, where we're going to talk about a book that we both read and kind of get the main points of it out there so that you, the listener, don't necessarily have to read the book in order to get the main points of it. So welcome to the show, Ryan. Really excited to have you on.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Stuart. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yep. Um, So we read the book Creativity Inc by Ed Catmull and really interesting book. He has so much experience from not only Pixar, but also Lucasfilms um, and another company that I'm not forgetting the name of in New York. I think it was New York Technology. I think it was, but just wide range of of creative um, endeavors, not only creative endeavors, but really the commercial side of creativity as well which so i 'm really excited to talk to you about this and get your opinion and it has how that how the book because you originally read it a couple years ago how that book has kind of influenced your um, creating Omni and helping to create Omni and, and kind of your views on creativity so uh, what was what were the main kind of takeaways that you got from this book
0: yeah I think uh, at a high level, I think what I loved about this book was um, I think Pixar is, they're, they're master storytellers. And I think in some ways, the story of Pixar is, is similarly romanticized um, in a lot of ways, especially when you just think about, you know, hit after hit after hit after hit. And uh, I like this sort of genre of writing or or um, even like essays and articles where, you know, people kind of pull back the curtain a little bit, uh, you know, on sort of how hard it is to actually to do, you know, world-class sort of exceptional work, and um, you know, you see this in startups when founders, you know, that are taking their company public, will reflect on just how hard it was to build this thing over a decade. Um, and on the outside, it looks like an overnight success, or it was really easy, or everything just came naturally. But on the inside, that's that's basically never true. And so, I love, you know, when people like Ed, who are these legendary, uh, you know, creators, operators. Uh, you know, sort of pull back that curtain and, and sort of give us an insight uh, and an inside view into what it was like to build, uh, you know, a company like Pixar. And, um, you know, I think specifically with Pixar, a company that was able to deliver just exceptional art um, married with a, a, you know, very, very strong uh, business. Um, and I think that's that's maybe the uniqueness of Pixar um, was how they were able to marry those two things. Uh, and as you said, you know, commercialize um, really, really incredible art very successfully.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And yeah, the, it was so interesting with this book in particular because I grew up in San Francisco. I grew up in Redden City, actually, so in the peninsula. Um, and uh, my father was in technology and I remember going to see Toy Story. Um, and so this brought up actually like a lot of emotional memories of like watching that movie And I had never, I never really delved into Pixar. I didn't realize that they were, they just one after the other, like you said, was just a hit after hit after half hit. And this is something that Ed Catmull really displays in the book, is that he was constantly trying to not let success get in his head. Um, So not to get hubris and stuff like that. And so he kept on asking himself questions about like, okay, how do I accept this this success, but not let it lead me into believing that, um, taking it personally, essentially.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, it's a, it's a variant of the Jeff Bezos, you know, it's always day one, um, you know, mindset that he always mentions in shareholder letters. And I think, you know, at Pixar, they apply it in a different way. But if you think about, you know, they, I don't know the stats, you know, exactly offhand, but it's something like, I know more than half of their films have been uh, nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature, so greater than fifty percent of the the products they release are nominated for the you know the highest honor in that category. Uh, And I think it's something like 10% of the top 50, you know, highest grossing films of all time are Pixar films. And, you know, it's, I think, you know, him saying that, and what I loved about the book, one of the things I loved about the book is just how much they were willing to, you know, always pursue the next level and, and have a very, very high bar and always push themselves. And and I'd love to talk more about that. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, as you said, like not letting the success of one film, uh, you know, get, get to their head.
1: Let's talk about that. Let's, so there was a really interesting thing. I forget the movie. I think it was maybe Monsters Inc. that they were working on, or maybe no, it was Toy Story 3, uh, where they had um, gotten the wrong director in and they had kind of screwed up for like six months and then it needed to erase the whole thing and redo it with a really limited time frame. And one of the people working there actually brought their, bi- or was in their car, coming from home to the office and was supposed to drop off their baby at a caretaker care, um, at a babysitter and then accidentally because they were so stressed out and tired left their baby in the Pixar parking lot in sunny San Francisco and the baby actually was like unconscious um, and it was like this huge traumatic thing and that showed Ed that, uh, that it's really important to work hard but at the same time you need to um, make sure that it doesn't go over the top and so what did you think about this, this, the, the, how they figured out how to um, essentially it's that work-life balance, balance key and kind of have you, does this apply at all to your work with Omni and are you guys thinking about this?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I think, I mean, I think every operator and manager uh, you know, thinks about every good operator and manager thinks about this uh, all the time. And I think, most companies are constantly trying to calibrate this. And, uh, you know, I think especially most companies that have been around for as long as Pixar definitely have, you know, stories of oscillating in either direction. And yeah, I think it's, you know, everyone would agree that that story is, is really traumatic and, you know, (laughs) definitely not something that you would aspire to culturally. Mm. And I think that, you know, rightfully so, they they kind of woke up, um, you know, it was a wake-up call for them and they were able to shift. And I think what what I found so inspiring about about Ed and about the way that that Pixar's culture was architected or what they they aspired to was creating this culture where people sort of uh, you know there was a bar of excellence and there was a bar that they, you know, needed to hit and wanted to hit. And culturally they set that bar very, very high. Um, but there was a certain amount of sort of candor and, um, you know, willingness to, to, to not, uh, not accept anything less, but also support each other in achieving that. And so they made space for, you know, each individual person to like the, the famous thing about decorating their own workspace, but make, giving space for people to bring, uh, you know, hopefully their, their whole selves to work um, and, you know, that and, and making space for people to, I think, do great work, uh, you know, striving for excellence while still having the balance they need. Um, but I think there's no, you know, there's no sort of covering up that there's extreme sacrifices that are required to, you know, to, to build something that's great, mm-hmm. um, in almost every case. And there's very few, uh, examples that, that aren't, um, you know, that, that don't have, you know, involve someone sacrificing a lot to mm-hmm. achieve something like this. So, uh, mm-hmm. I think it's definitely a balance and something that, that I think, you know, a lot of people think about, um, especially when you're running teams and running organizations of how do you strike that right balance? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, can you guys give a little insight into how you do it at Omni?
0: Sure. So I, uh, so personally, uh, my, my view is um, I want to be fully, fully present in whatever I'm doing. And so um, I have a son uh, who's a year and a half old uh, and a wife. And when I'm uh, home with them and it's, it's time uh, you know, that I'm spending with my son and my family, uh, I want to be fully 100% engaged there. Um, and I want to be a fantastic dad and, and a fantastic husband. And when I am at Omni and I'm, I'm leading, leading the team and I'm uh, you know, in, at the office, I want to be fully 100% engaged and bring my whole self uh, to work. And something that uh, Scott Belsky actually said to me that I thought was really interesting. Um, he's the uh, chief creative officer uh, or chief product officer at Adobe um, and founder of Behance. Uh, he said that he you know, he feels most fulfilled and like he's the best version of himself in every part of his life. When he, uh, you know, is executing at a high level, uh, you know, in each other part of his life. So if he's, uh, you know, overweighted in one category, it actually he feels these very strong ripple effects into other parts of his life. So if he's, you know, overweighted at work. Um, and you know sort of bogged down there he uh, notices his immediate impact on his ability to be a father and a partner um, and similarly you know if, if there's you know if he feels overweighted and sort of um, dragged down as a father and a partner and not able to be effective in that part of his role uh, he feels that trickle into work and it's something that I think a lot of people experience and so I try to uh, you know I think work-life balance is the cliche term for it. But I think really it's about, you know, finding what works for you. And so for me uh, and my wife and, and my family, it's about, uh, you know, having, you know, clear time that's dedicated to them, uh, you know, in, in the morning and in, in the evenings and, you know, making time for that and being committed to that. Um, but then also being incredibly effective, uh, you know, at Omni and when I'm, uh, you know, here leading the team and and being available, um, you know, after hours is sort of, you know, part of the job. And so, um, I think we, my, my encouragement to my team is like, you know, take, find the rhythm that works for you and don't let the rhythm that we, that other people on the team set necessarily, you know set your rhythm as well. And so, um, you know, there's people that go home, uh, you know, early and and see their kids every single night. Uh, there's people that stay late with their kids in the morning and then, uh, you know, come in, come in later. And I think that, you know, part of what you can do at a startup that maybe at other companies you can't do. And it's sort of, I think a beautiful thing is you can allow people to have that freedom, uh, to set that, you know, how they want, um, and then, you know, be able to deliver world-class results, uh, in the way that they're best set up to do that. And this is
1: some. this ties into something that was really good in the book that he talks about. He used a metaphor of a suitcase and a handle. And most people talk about work life balance. But then when they actually their actions come up, they actually the particularly the leaders of the companies, their actions don't actually reflect what their words are talking about. So he says that's like having a suitcase and a handle. But when you pick up the suitcase, you're only picking up the handle and the suitcase stands on the floor. And mm. Really interesting and really important, and it also shows up in a book called "Don't." It doesn't have to be crazy at work by the. Yeah, the, I love that book. Yeah, so that's <laughs> like mind blowing, um, and so it's it's really important. And what you just said it seems like you guys do it is basically that there is not only the policy, but there is also the 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 um, experience and the the not. It's showing through the actions rather than through, through the words.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, it's about, I think, you know, when you try to get into policies and rules and things like that, I just think that you've kind of, you're missing the point. And I think it's about trying to create a culture where people feel like they can be their whole selves. They can bring their whole selves to work. Uh, you know, they can be their whole selves at home, at work, wherever they are. Um, and trying to avoid these like, you know, highly siloed, uh, you know, situations where people feel like they have to, um, you know, create these sort of rigid barriers. Um, you know, and, and, Because of what work, you know, work tells them they have to do things a certain way. Um, And I think that, you know, if you're trying to, if you're hiring world-class people who are really, really good at what they do, um, and you're, you're a small team working towards a really big goal, you have the opportunity to set people up to be, uh, you know, to sort of self-select into how they're most effective. And I think that's maybe another way to think about work-life balance is, you know, everyone has different priorities and people at different stages of their life have different priorities and allowing them to, uh, you know, be effective in the way that best matches their priorities, as long as that, you know, lines up with the company's priorities is a recipe for success. Mm.
1: That's a good point. And that was something interesting that he also talked about was that they had a lot of uh, people in the organization who had families and then who were also single. And he said it; he made it a key point that, You can't judge the output of the people who are single as the same way as the people with families because they have different life situations and that needs to be taken into account. Otherwise, that'll seep into the culture, um, which is really interesting. So what are the main lessons that you learned from this book that you've applied to Omni?
0: Yeah, I think... Yeah, so I think there's... um... I don't know how many, of, how many of these are lessons that I learned specifically from the book, but I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of confirmations of uh, things that, we, that I've made a point to try to bring to the culture of Omni and uh, that we really strive for, and then also in my personal life. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I, I really loved about his framing was, um, you know, this is something that's pretty common, at least in terms of you know, recruiting and building teams at startups, but hiring against potential um, versus sort of hiring against past achievements is a really important framework that I think is gaining in popularity and is you know, harder to do at uh, larger companies where perhaps you need to meet certain experience requirements or there's very specific things that you have to you know, have on your resume or whatever it might be. But at, uh, at Omnia, we think we use this term uh, floors and ceilings for people. And so oftentimes in recruiting, we will talk about candidates uh, in terms of their floor and their ceiling. And so, someone who, you know, if you're hiring someone at, uh, let's say, a director level uh, or a manager level, um, someone that has already been a director and a manager at another company in uh, a similar space that's been successful, they have a, a pretty high floor um, because you know that they're, you know, they're probably like pretty competent at the job and they 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 definitely know how to do this and they've done it before. Um, but perhaps you, you might feel like they don't, you don't know what their ceiling is. You interview them and they're, they're not particularly remarkable. They seem competent. Uh, but you, you know, it's pretty clear that they're not going to go on to become like a VP uh, you know, or a C-level executive at some point. They don't have this you know, potential to sort of change the course of the company. Conversely, you might email, you might interview someone else who you know has a much lower, uh, you know, much lower level of experience, and they may maybe never done the exact job before. But you interview them, and you see this spark, and you see that they have this this something. There's something remarkable about them, um, whether it's an insight, or that the way they communicate, or um, strategies that they're they're talking through that they've thought through, whatever it might be. Um, and so you might, you might identify that they have maybe a lower floor. It could actually, you know, they could actually be much worse at the job than, than another candidate, but they might have a much higher ceiling. Uh, you, know, you might look at that and say, this person could actually change the trajectory of the company, even though we're hiring them into like a manager or director role. Um, you know, they, they clearly have something very unique and they could, they could be maybe the best in the world, uh, at this function. And so, uh, I think that's something that, that Ed identified in building Pixar. And I think that, uh, especially er- at early stage teams, when you're building out teams at a startup. Uh, you're not going to be able to compete, uh, you know, with the big companies. This is something that Peter Thiel sort of famously, uh, you know, started, started saying early on was you're not going to be able to compete with the big companies in terms of salaries. Uh, and if you do, it's a recipe for disaster. Uh, and so you have to be able to find and identify undiscovered talent. And so I think a version of that, uh, or maybe building on that idea uh, is, you know, identifying people that have really, really high ceilings, and then building a culture where they can come in and achieve those ceilings. And so, um, you know, some of the people that, some of the people that I'm, that I love working with at Omni are the people that came in, uh, you know, they came in with at, at very, very high ceilings and they're starting to achieve, you know, those ceilings uh, at Omni. You can see that happening and the team sees that happening. And so uh, I think that's a really rewarding part of building teams and building cultures and something that uh, Pixar clearly values a lot as well. Mm.
1: That must be an amazing feeling to see that. Yeah. Um, so I want to bring a quote. I'm looking at my notes from from, uh, from the book, and there's one line where he was talking about getting advice from other people and how a lot of the advice is kind of ridiculous, and he'd be, he'd be reading these popular book, business books, but the business books would just use these terminology. And so one of the big pieces of advice was he got was focus, focus, focus. Um, and when people hear it, they nod their heads in agreement as if it's a great, great truth that has been presented, not realizing that they've been diverted from addressing the far harder problem, deciding what it is that they should be focusing on. Um, Mm. I think that's a really important thing. Do you have any insights into how you guys figure out what you should be focusing on?
0: Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. Uh, I think especially at early stage companies and early startups, because you, you have, everyone sees a huge amount of opportunity ahead of the company that, or they wouldn't join. And so, especially if you have people who are really excited and really passionate, which hopefully you do, um, you can, there, there's a risk of sort of always thinking about and getting excited and a lot of cultural energy, um, you know, going towards things that aren't the most important thing at that moment. And one of the things that I really admire, we, can, we should talk more about this specific thing, but I really admire about Pixar is their willingness to uh it, sort of relentlessly resource against what they believe uh, is the best possible thing they can produce, even to the point of like cutting things, uh, you know, mid-production or or almost in post-production because they weren't quite at the level they needed, they they thought they needed to be, and moving those resources to focus them on something that they thought could be even better. Mm. And uh, you know, famously happened with the film Newt, where they pulled people off that, uh, and and the director basically said, "Hey, I, I, I think we need to work on this other project," and that turned into Inside Out, and so. Uh, which I I think is one of the greatest Pixar films that they've they, they've they've done, and so I think that you know when you're when you're thinking about resourcing and uh, how do you organize a team around goals, uh, something that I I'm constantly trying to do at Omni is how can we simplify. Uh, our understanding of goals, of, of the business, of what matters. Mm. Uh, I send out an email every single month that just says what matters. And it's just five things, ideally less than five, but never more than five, five things that matter uh, for the month ahead. And I think that's a that's that's a way that I've used to sort of focus the team on a very small number of things that I think are incredibly important for the next 30 days. Mm. And it's, it's, I think, a constant sort of... Um, you know, focusing at the sort of top level of the company uh, that trickles down uh, to make it very clear what things actually really matter for that period. And um, at startups, you know, you you have a very finite amount of resources, and so it's very difficult to to accomplish. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to be successful at all at a startup. Um, you know, the odds are against you. Um, and it's even more difficult if you're spreading those resources across a bunch of different opportunities. And so finding it's the leader's job to find the points of leverage and find the opportunities and then, uh, focus the team on those and then set up the team for success and their ability to execute against those opportunities. And that that accountability is the reason why management is so
1: hard, right? Because you've you've you you've got the whole weight of your shoulders on this whole company and you've got everybody looking to you. And this is this is a really interesting thing that Ed, Ed talks about, which is that the creating a company is like you're in a ship and you don't really know where land is, but you kind of have to point somewhere and say that's where land is, even though you don't really know if it is there, and you just gotta go and like lead people or else that they or else people will feel that, right?
0: Totally. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, And so, yeah. And then I I was thinking that this book would have a lot of practical advice and the story behind Pixar, which it did. And then towards the end, he started to get into really kind of philosophical things about randomness and unpredictability. And then almost the whole thing, the whole like second half of the book, a lot of it seems like it's a way of describing meditation without talking about meditation as well. Um, he gives this great definition of consciousness, which is essentially like that consciousness never exists in isolation, that, that it's always um, dependent on its environment as well. Um, are there any key points that you learned about randomness or how to? Uh, how do, we already talked about it a little bit, uh, how do you work in unpredictability or in places uncertainty and things like that? Is there anything you learned from this book about that?
0: I liked his definition of creativity. And I don't remember it offhand. It's in my Kindle highlights, but it was something, uh, something like the that creativity is when you connect two seemingly random, uh, random facts or ideas um, or stories, or you could insert sort of any noun there. Uh, you connect them uh, in a way that that suddenly makes sense uh, to other humans. Mm. And I thought that was uh, pretty interesting to think about, both from a storytelling perspective, um, a lot of building companies and building teams and communication is storytelling and so uh, I thought it was interesting from that angle which is probably how it most closely applies at Pixar but also uh, you know creativity isn't just something that's siloed to the arts creativity uh, in business and in strategy and in team building Mm -hmm. is also super important and so I really liked that definition and I thought there was um, you know a lot to be learned across probably a lot of our lives um, in thinking about how you know how, how to be more creative Uh, in solving problems, how to be more creative in our relationships, how to be more creative um, and th- the things that matter, you know, rather than settling for the, the way that things are done today, um, you know, how can we how can we come up with creative solutions? And I think if you if you sort of look at some of the major um, the sort of breakthrough things that have happened in the tech industry, but also just entrepreneurship as a whole, um, you know, you could you could distill them down uh, to you know a definition that or something very similar to that definition. And so I think that's a, a pretty interesting framework for you know how creativity uh, and the human mind and relationships. Uh, how we engage in creativity together.
1: And there's two really good examples of that creativity in a business context, particularly in negotiation, which he talks about, which is the first one, which is George Lucas um, talking with, I believe it was Disney. uh, No, it was 20th Century Fox and negotiating the rights to Star Wars. And instead of getting a bigger cut or a bigger salary, um, he asked for uh, merchandising um, rights. And that, that, changed the whole world of filmmaking because all of a sudden, like Star Wars created this whole brand that he, he then went on to merchandise and made a lot of money on these figurines and uh, on these extra stories of Star Wars. And that's like a creativity and negotiation that we don't really think about like as an an art form, but that was like, that took a lot of kind of thinking, okay, I'm not going to do it the way it was done before. I'm going to I can see something more valuable in this art that's created out of Star Wars. So I'm going to actually capitalize on that. And then there's another good example, which is Steve Jobs. When they were, when yeah. they were thinking about doing the IPO uh, of Pixar, everybody was like, that's a bad idea. We should wait until we have a few wins until Toy Story 1 is out. Um, and Steve Jobs was like, no, we should do the IPO now um, because I see in the future that Michael Eisner of Disney is going to once they see our success with Toy Story One, they're going to want they're going to they are going to see that we are creating a new competitor almost. So they he saw that Michael Eisner would want to actually renegotiate the contract so that they would become more partners, so that they wouldn't create this competition. And that's actually ended up exactly what happened. Um, so really, two kind of examples of what you're talking about of this of this creativity in business, um, which I which is my, what my whole podcast is about basically is is not only is in this art art kind of association, which most of us have about creativity. Um, But it's a much larger context that essentially every human being is creative.
0: Yeah, I think it's fascinating to think about how you can tell how much that was in Pixar's DNA, Mm -hmm. because they're not just, they weren't just creative in the films and the art they produced, but they were creative across the entire way they ran the company. Uh, As you mentioned, how they thought about financing and fundraising and negotiations. And I think it's fascinating to think about how the, the fact that this creativity was in their DNA, uh, I mean, the book is literally called Creativity Inc., how that gave them actually a competitive advantage, uh, you know, organizationally and sort of commercially with other companies uh, because of their way, their, their ability to think differently about problems. To think differently about bringing these films to market, uh, to have the confidence to do crazy things like kill a film, you know, when it's almost ready to, to go out, uh, and push for something better. Um, I think there's just, there's so many stories in the book where you can see how this sort of very foundational DNA to who Pixar was, uh, as a company, uh, was, was sort of it mirrored in their art um, and vice versa, and and I think it gave them this huge advantage. I think you also see it in companies like Apple. There's a lot of shared DNA there, mm. um, and how it allows them to work in a similar way with their products. And I think that's just it's it's interesting to see how uh, you know the creativity wasn't siloed just to the sort of art side of the house mm. uh, at Pixar, but it was sort of this very all-encompassing, uh, almost religious type thing that they treasured and valued and pushed everyone for.
1: Mm. This brings to mind a very difficult question deep question which is how do you instill how do you create that dna of creativity inside of a company which i guess the whole book is about which what we're talking about but um do you have any thoughts on that how do you actually instill creativity inside the dna of a business maybe even in omni
0: yeah i think there's a few ways you can do it i think uh ed points to uh the manage the sort of manager uh managerial relationship a lot in the book And I think that's a really, really important one. You can have these big cultural values and, you know, cultural sort of company-wide initiatives. But, you know, on the individual teams, the individual people with their managers and their teammates is where a lot of the, you know, the sort of micro level is where a lot of the most uh, valuable creativity happens, I think. And so... He talks about you know manager managers jobs. It's it's uh I forget the exact quote, but it's something like managers jobs are not to prevent people from failing, but for making it uh you know like safe to do so. Mm. And I think that's a a pretty. Uh, interesting framing. And I think that there's just absolutely no way to create an organization that has, uh, you know, creative people thinking about creative solutions without also making it okay to fail. Mm. And it's really difficult, especially in, you know, building startups, because you're, you know, constantly your back's against the wall, you have competitors, other people are trying to solve the same problems you are, you have to deal with funding and run away and all these things. And so it's very difficult. And it requires this a certain level of sort of, you know, contrarian, like thinking to be able to make space for, creativity, but it's absolutely vital. And so I think at the managerial level is where it's maybe that's where the, the, the most important piece of it is. But I also think there's ways to do it at the sort of cultural and company level. And so at Omni, we'll do uh, specific sort of ideation sessions where we'll have people from various teams and we'll all get in a room together. Everyone brings in uh, you know a stack of post-it notes and we'll there'll be various prompts and we will sort of brainstorm with a very we call it like yes and so it's there's no no saying like no that won't work or that i don't think that'll happen we'll but like yes and what if we did x y and z and you sort of what we find is that the first maybe 20 30 40 percent of those meetings it's kind of you get all the uh you know sort of very topical ideas or obvious ideas out and then you start getting into this uncomfortable phase where you're you're sharing the ideas that are a little bit wacky or um, a little bit maybe even embarrassing to share or they feel way too out there and then right on the other side of that is where sort of the magic starts to happen Mm. and you can start to see really interesting connections uh, whether it's on product or marketing uh, or growth or whatever part of the company we're focusing on and you know obviously we're in a very different business than Pixar but I think Building that, having mechanisms for those types of conversations to happen in a safe way within your company is really important, and something we're still investing in. You know, we want to create that more and more uh, with every day that goes by, and I think that the great companies, you know, find ways to build that into the DNA and then preserve that and continue to invest in it over time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just mentioned something that he mentions as well, which is uh, embarrassment. Most people are afraid of creativity. Of the true uh, creative ideas and the true creative expressions you risk embarrassment i find it all the time in my in creating this podcast is saying something that that i find embarrassing um putting myself out there in a way and and it's that inner critic and you, it's funny because you mentioned this yes and idea and i've recently started going to comedy improv dropping classes and improv is all about that yes and where did you guys get that
0: Our uh, VP of product actually kind of brought this culturally to the company. Uh, I don't know where he originally got it, but it it does feel like almost foundationally tied to improv and um, sort of that relational, like, uh, you know, you're sort of building on the ideas and building on the conversation and building on the storylines of each other. Mm -hmm. So I can see how that would tie closely to, you know, some of the elements of improv. Mm.
1: One part in this book I really enjoyed was towards the end where he started to talk about once Steve Jobs had had helped them to be acquired by Disney, and then Steve made a really important negotiation, which was that Disney already had an animation department that had been responsible for Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, all these things, but had been floundering for the last 10 years. Um, And then when Disney bought Pixar for, I think, like 7 or $8 billion, um, Steve negotiated so that Ed and this other guy who I can't remember the name, I think it was John, uh, John Lasseter, um, they both become the head of Disney animation in Burbank and Pixar. So they remained in c- control both and they merged them, they didn't keep them separate. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And then an interesting part of that was that um, Ed then had to go into the Burbank studios for Disney animation Um, And start to apply the same thing that they learned at Pixar but in a company that had been running for I don't know 60 70 years already and had already built up all these cultural influences uh, and this this um, uh, Inertia uh, That he had to fight against and I thought that was really interesting Um, And and you guys being in a smaller a smaller state right now You guys are very nimble and this is so interesting to me about the companies as they grow how you can manage this large complexity this large inertia while at the same time kind of maintaining nimble maintaining that startup atmosphere and stuff like that what do you think about those those ideas
0: yeah i think it's very difficult the inertia of any i think any organization whether it's a team of people on a you know a sports team whether it's a company whether it's a uh, you know Nonprofit, or neighborhood organization, whatever it is, the organization, the the inertia of companies uh, and and groups of people is a really, I think, a really powerful thing. And I think we often, um, you know, maybe don't weight that quite heavily enough when we think about uh, culture, when we think about um, you know scaling teams and scaling organizations. The inertia that you have early on almost always carries through, and I think one way to think about it is like, you know, the team is the team is going to get bigger, but it's probably going to be very similar, just, you know, multiplied uh, from the the way that the company worked and the way that relationships were built and the you know demographics of the team and all these elements of the team when it's five, you know, the team at 50 is probably just going to be that times 10, Mm -hmm. um, especially if you have, you know, sort of strong cultural leaders in there. And so I think a lot of companies, maybe and maybe organizations, companies might even be uh, too specific, but organizations broadly, uh, you know, thinking really deeply about who the, the those first foundational people are is so important. And I think you, that's when you start to build the inertia of culture, build the inertia of relationships, build the inertia of work styles, build the inertia of collaboration. And you can see it in Pixar from day one. I mean, I, I think actually Pixar is remarkably similar, you know, 20 years later, as it was to, uh, you know, basically when they were working on the first Toy Story film. Mm. And that's a testament to inertia. And, and when, when it's working, you're just trying to preserve it at all costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it starts to not work and when, it's, when it gets off, that's when it gets really difficult. And the art of sort of bending the inertia into the direction that you want it to you, know, you, you be or stopping inertia uh, you know, in its tracks, if, if there's things that are festering that, that need to be fixed is really, really difficult. And I think that's one, one part of organization building that isn't talked about enough. And that concept of inertia is really important. And that brings up what he talks about, which is
1: the perfect time for managers to show their values to the rest of the company is not when things are going right, because everybody's stuck in a kind of a hubris spot and, and thinking that they're right. So there's no real problems. But the perfect time is when things go wrong. And that's really the time where managers can show the actual values in action, not only in speech. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, another interesting thing was towards the end as well, where he starts talking because Pixar has this really interesting story in the beginning where they started off, I believe it was in LucasArts, with this machinery, this hardware that they had built that could do animation. Yeah. And so they started off the company as a hardware startup, uh, and then Steve Jobs poured in like five hundred million dollars or something insane, or I don't know if it was that much, but it was a lot of money. 10, yeah. How much? Ten million. Ten million. Okay, yeah, uh, ten million dollars of his own money, and then basically, uh, you know, they're just like, this is not working, and they they priced it r- way too high, um, and then they had this coming to a moment of just like, what are we gonna do? Uh, and then they they start to actually create. Uh, the animations themselves and start to create a, a full scale movie uh, movie um movie studio, uh, but based in Oakland, so really or emeryville and so that's uh, at the end he starts he talks about that um, Pixar doesn't sell t- technology, they sell stories enabled by technology, yeah, yeah, what do you think of that? What do you think about that kind of um, mm, kind of so I guess, yeah, what Technology is now starting to affect multiple layers of our of our lives and everything like that and starting to get into everything Um, and What do you think about this idea that of of technology enabling? Totally different things. I mean even in what you guys are doing technology is starting to enable anybody to um, uh, Share all of their stuff um, or some of their stuff and actually receive money for it. What do you think about this whole concept or idea?
0: Yeah, I mean I love the I love the uh the, there's the sort of idea I think Paul Graham uh talked about this in an essay but the idea that if you're if the, the mar- if you're building something and the market doesn't see the value of it uh, and you know it—it's it, going to create a better product than what's on the market today. Just don't sell it anymore. Just take it in house, and then just go compete with everyone else. Mm. And it's basically what Pixar did. They—they they had this technology that they knew could deliver, uh, you know, a a much more lifelike animated experience for visual content. And they were trying to sell it initially, and they decided, "Hey, well, well, let's just actually take this in-house, and then we'll do the content ourselves." Um, and the rest is history. So I think, in some ways, it's this kind of classic, uh, classic pivot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in another way, I think that I think that framework is really interesting. Where if you've developed something really uh, like a breakthrough technology, and the market doesn't value it correctly, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes the best the best idea is just take it in-house and then go compete with everyone else. Mm-hmm. That's But true. I think, in general, it's it's a pretty interesting. I think maybe. I think it's very interesting to think about how Pixar leveraged is really a tech. It's that Steve jobs quote is, is pretty spot on and it's a tech driven company that is that the technology actually allows them to tell much better stories. And I think Mm -hmm. we'll see more of this happening and we already are seeing a lot more of this happening across every industry where technology is not just an industry. It's empowering every other industry to be more efficient to deliver Mm -hmm. better products. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so powerful about, about technology. And, I think it's interesting to think about Pixar's uh, leverage coming not just from great stories, but also from the technology that they build. And now their advantage is probably a lot less than it was uh, when Toy Story came out. But their and their advantage now and the moat they've built is is you know largely also based on storytelling. But certainly early on, uh, the moat was heavily technology uh, technology based, and it's fascinating to think about. The decision they made to take the technology and then, you know, create Toy Story with that technology based on this short film they had done, uh, and the, the how big of a bet that was—basically risking the entire company—which uh, mm-hmm. is a fascinating sort of part of this. I think most people don't know is they they essentially bet the entire company on Toy Story. Uh, mm-hmm. and if it didn't work, they were done, mm-hmm. and the other twenty nineteen films after that would have never happened. And uh, the confidence they had to to make that call when they were struggling is pretty, pretty incredible. And then to deliver work that's that exceptional under that amount of pressure, uh, with the odds against them and with everything on the line is just incredible. And so I think that's, that, that is what makes, you know, everything after that, you know, viewing all their success after that, through that lens Mm. makes it all that, that more inspiring, uh, to see what they've done since then, uh, and kept that DNA at their core. Mm.
1: That's so important. Um, There's a great quote that he has, which says that, and that creativity at its best surprises us all. Um, In what ways has creativity surprised you either in your own life, something you've consumed or read or watched or or maybe even in the business, seeing somebody do a really creative, something really creative in their work life?
0: Great question. Something I've been reading a lot about recently is uh, some of the lesser told stories uh, of the founding fathers of America and sort of the, the founding story um, of America. And it's fascinating to me uh, how many, Something I've learned, just been unpacking, is just how many disparate ideas were on the table, um, and how many, how many times they had to work through these very creative solutions to get everyone, uh, you know, willing to vote for something that needed to happen. Whether it was like, you know, ratifying documents, or whether it was, you know, agreeing on where the capital should be, uh, or what the, you know, whether the states should assume debt, or there should be a national, you know, sort of debt uh, function all these things were these sort of massive problems they were trying to solve and uh, the the creativity that they approached these with and the, the willingness to try things that had never been done before is, is actually really incredible. And there's a lot of the stories that are, you know, I think in some ways it feels we, we romanticize it as this sort of very aligned group of people that did this amazing thing. And uh, they were all sort of on the same page and they were the founders and you know, they, they got it done. And when you start to unpack all the different narratives and you start reading biographies from, you know, different people you realize actually how how much you know especially using Ed's definition of creativity uh they were taking these very disparate ideas and very disparate views on what would work and why um and that's something I've been struck by recently uh in a lot of the reading I've done it's just uh sort of how how many how many things like that they overcame uh as part of the founding of America so that would be one that that definitely comes to mind um and then I think just especially in in Jumping to today, uh, the the sort of the, the constant wave of really smart people tackling really smart problems um, in the tech industry is just super inspiring to me. And so, getting to spend time with uh, you know founders that I'll meet at a dinner or over coffee that are just taking these huge swings, uh, you know, to solve really, really big problems uh, and doing it in very creative ways that haven't been tried before. Um, I don't think I'll ever not be inspired by those conversations and just thankful to have how many smart people are trying to, to take these swings to make the world a better place.
1: That's so great. I had never heard of creativity being applied to the founding of the United States, which obviously now that I think about it, a highly creative endeavor. Uh, I mean, the Constitution is is one of the most creative documents, creative uh, institutions that has ever been created before. And I've been doing this show for a year now talking about creativity and I haven't heard about that. So that's Mm -hmm. really interesting. so, yeah, I mean, that's that's that sounds like we've we've covered the book. Is there any other parts of the book that you want to let the audience know about that really kind of influenced your ability to create?
0: I think the last thing about the book that was really inspiring to me and I think is really important is how uh, how Ed talked about and and the culture in Pixar around people, um, and specifically around you know sort of this idea of like candor and feedback. Uh, and I think part of one of the I can't remember the exact language he uses, but this language around and the idea around debating, uh, you know, ideas and not people and sort of making, you know, when you're having, you know, hard conversations or you're debating, you know, in Pixar's case, hey, do we do we resource against this this film or this film or is this thing good enough or not? Removing the people from it and, and debating something for its merits uh, or debating the ideas or the substance is a much healthier way to make decisions, and it actually allows organizations and teams to make much better decisions because things don't become personal. And you can see this at Pixar. Um, I, I was at a um, an event once, and there was two directors, um, two Pixar directors, uh, over dinner talking about getting pulled off different films. And you would have expected this to be this very like contentious, emotional experience to have you know to be to spend two years on a film and then get pulled off it and have someone else on it you would expect that to be like the equivalent of getting fired or, uh, you know, a highly sort of emotional, tough experience. And they were talking about it as if it was, you know, getting like, you know, I don't know, something just very casual. And like, it was just, oh yeah, well, you know, she was better at working on this or he was better at working on this. So yeah, he jumped on that. And, uh, it was this very casual thing. And I was struck by that. And it, it sort of made me realize that's probably one of the superpowers that Pixar has is this ability for people to put the, the product and the, the story and the film above, you know, their own, you know, personal feelings around it and be able to say, yeah, I'm I'm not the best person for this. or yeah, let's give someone else a shot at this or see if someone else can improve it. And that idea of sort of making things not personal, but just making them about the idea or the the subject um, or the substance is a much more powerful way to make decisions. And I think actually allows you to have, uh, you know, kind of going back to like the book, it doesn't have to be crazy at work. It actually allows you to remove a lot of the um, you know, intense emotional ties to things, um, I think, in a really powerful way. And it allows you to, to have much more healthy, rigorous debates when everything doesn't immediately become personal like it does in a lot of organizations.
1: That's a really good point. Um, and you also mentioned something which he goes over and over again, which is that he differentiated the word honesty from candor because people have an issue with this word honesty and being totally honest with Everything that they're coming out with, um, and so he he differentiated. I can't remember exactly how he did it, but he said, "candor is a much better way to to say it because people don't have these negative judgments of the word uh, or positive judgments of the word candor." Um, and radical candor is something that's really important inside of a inside of a inside of a company.
0: Yeah, for anyone that hasn't read uh, Kim Scott's book called Radical Candor. Uh, It's one of the most impactful books for me. And I think a lot of people at Omni and highly recommend uh, everyone read that. So this is really
1: great. This has been an awesome conversation. And I really hope that we've created this piece of content that will, that will further the message of creative creativity, Inc. Um, It's been a huge pleasure. How can people find more about you and what you're doing?
0: Yeah, I'm uh, probably the best place to find me is on Twitter. So I'm at Delk on Twitter, D E L K. Um, and Omni is at Omni, O-M-N-I um, Omni is a rentals marketplace that gives you access to rent items in your neighborhood. So it's a it's an easy way to be able to rent anything you might need uh, instead of owning it. And we're live in New York, L.A., San Francisco and Portland with a lot of other cities coming soon. So if you live in those cities or if you don't check out Omni uh, and we would love to. Uh, I'd love to hear from you on Twitter. Um, and if I can ever be helpful, feel free to reach out.
1: Such a cool company. Like I've gone on there a few times. I haven't rented at anything yet, but it's such a cool company and the idea of it. And once I start making some more money, I'll be renting a whole bunch of stuff from you guys.
0: <laughs> Sounds good, Stuart. Thank
1: you so much. Thanks. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy, because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next 100 years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day.